0: How was the role-playing game played back at the birth of the hobby? Is there anything to be learned from the earliest role-playing campaigns? And what do we mean when we talk about the traditional game? If you say... It's time to start a new role-playing page. And you need a rescue. Chase coming at you with a rescue. A role-play rescue. Chase going to help my friend. Let's sit down to game again. Rescue. My name is Che Webster. And this is Roleplay Rescue. Hello Rescuers, thank you for listening and I hope that you are well. About a month ago I was fiddling around in Twitter when I got into a tweet chat kind of thing with Griff, one of the creative team behind The Secrets of Blackmoor, a film that takes you into the true history behind Dungeons & Dragons. Very quickly we decided to hop onto Skype and have a chat, although I'm a big fan of the film, I didn't want to talk about that and I asked Griff if we could talk about what he terms the traditional game. What you're about to hear is the Skype conversation I had with Griff as edited by the wonderfully talented and generous hand of Frank L. Turfler Jr., the man behind Middle Kingdom's publishing and the excellent maps available on his Patreon. A big thank you to Frank for saving me hours of editing time and actually cleaning up this recording to make it vaguely listenable to. It's very, very much appreciated, Frank. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please consider popping over to the Secrets of Blackmore website and downloading the film, secretsofblackmore.com. Secrets of Blackmore is all one word, and that's also where you can find Griff's rather cool blog. This is Season 6, Episode 3 Talking the Traditional Game with Griff. Let's dive in. Rescue. Griffith Mon Morgan III is a writer, director, and gamer whose collaboration on The Secrets of Blackmoor Film, released in 2019, has shone a bright light on the origins of role-playing games rooted back in the work of Dave Wesley and Dave Arson, a proponent of what he terms traditional role-playing this is an active, influential voice in the community. And someone for me, I think last year when I saw this film, it was so, so inspired. So, without any further ado, I welcome... Reference to the show. Thanks for joining us.
1: No, I'm in just it. glad to be here, you know, and, and and it's cool that you want to talk about. You said you wanted to talk about kind of traditional gaming, and that's kind of my thing.
0: Yeah, I, I think um you know the, the film has been for me a great inspiration. It's been something that, you know, I went back and I watched this thing and I kind of watched it in fascination. I think I've seen it three times over now. Um, and every single time there's something in there. But of course, well, for me what's rooted in that you know in terms of what we do and in, in, in roleplay rescue here is that whole kind of calling people back to the game back to the game and i just felt there was a certain sort of heart simplicity if you like to to what i was seeing that i i found absolutely fascinating so i wondered if we might talk a little bit about that really
1: um yeah i mean what specifically i mean what really struck you about the film you know that you say it's calling you back to to kind of like older games and, and kind of the, the, roots and, and
0: yeah, and, I know. think for me, well, for me, you know, I started out, um, when I was about six, seven years old, my dad got me wargaming. So first of all, the first resonance for me, you know, was watching these wargamers um and heard right. about branstein and the kind of beginnings of that that role-playing behavior you know like taking on the roles of, of generals and then taking on i had some affinity with that you know back in the day my dad and i used to take on a certain amount of that going on at our gaming table in the uk you know so so i resonate that resonated and then seeing that develop until you taken forward and become you know what ultimately became dungeons and dragons and on into this amazing hobby that's obsessed me for 40 years uh um, yeah you no know, that's that was a wonderful process uh, but to realize that it happened i feel it happened almost it felt like a combination of a bit of an accident and a bit of like you know dave wesley kind of thinking he completely messed up and then realizing that actually that there was something going on there they wanted to continue playing you know that was fascinating to me um and then to see sort of Arneson take that forward and and obviously what, you know the guess that gets handed off into gygax and what have you to some degree but i was fascinated by what it was in its very beginnings
1: you know, talking to people, I was trying to formulate ideas to try to describe what role playing is. And, yeah. and so I sort of had to fall back on the idea of like, OK, let's let's not describe too much what it is. But let's just say if it has a little bit of role playing, we're just going to call it a role playing game. Yeah, because there was that there was that whole attitude of like, you know, this is role playing. This is not. And, mm-hmm. and I just thought the research community was kind of screwy with that. In the past week, it sort of dawned on me because I kept hearing people talk about like, Especially younger gamers, they sort of think that the old gamers didn 't role play and that they've invented something new, and it 's like, "No, no,' oh. they, uh, play <laughs> than you do you know it's, It was a lot deeper And uh, in some cases, depending on the dm and so it it dawned on me that actually role playing is is sort of at least in in the what I call the adventure game, which is what Arneson created and which was yeah. used in d and which people still use today mm. in that format, you're interacting with the full environment. And so yeah. really role playing the the idea that role playing is is centered on on sort of the semantic meaning of like I am playing a role is false. Yeah. And and really what you're doing is you are immersing yourself in this world. I can touch things, I can smell things, I can watch things happen at a distance, I mm-hmm. can talk to people, I can fight people. So I'm interacting on every level like a real person would.
0: Yeah, absolutely. For me, it's always been that exploration really. You know, like you I, I started, I think um we'd been playing Traveler and D D, but I really started with RuneQuest um in that world uh-huh. of Glorantha. you know, and and that obsessed me. You know, I drawn into something that was quite alien. And from that in my life, I i'd gone on to become a teacher and a theologian and all sorts of things. It came from that initial kind of flavor of Glorantha, you know, which I had to tease out over many years. <laughs> the gaming was the means by which I could enter that other world. And I know that sounds screwy to some people, but, you know, that was what it was about.
1: You know, it's interesting because setting is, is really critical to the experience. And a lot of the early settings are so personal. D&D came out and it was sort of generic fantasy. And so everybody was sort of home ruling and designing their own. I don't think they came up with a module till maybe, I guess the first module would be Arneson's Temple of the Frog and the Blackmore mm. Supplements. That's 1975. Up until then, nobody really knew how to do it. If you look at the original rules, there isn't a lot of information how to do it. Mm. And, uh, and it's funny you mentioned uh, uh, RuneQuest because that was one system I never got into. I was always curious about it. Yeah. And I knew all these guys that played, but I just wasn't in their group. They were kind of, I don't know, they just had a different vibe than I did. Yeah. I had yeah. my own group. Like everybody had their own group. Like it was like being in a gang, you know, <laughs> kinda like you'd meet in neutral territory and talk about gaming and then go off to your turf.
0: Winkers, <laughs> yeah. for me was a total accident. It was my father, who is the war gamer, you know, he he got curious about role playing and and went down to the games room in Norwich, which is uh, you know, city over in East Angler in the UK, and uh, he bought this game, this box game. It was the I think it's a second edition, it was about eighty three ish, I would imagine. It's when I got my hands on this. And he read it, well had a look at it and then tossed it aside. So I squirreled it off to my room and and that was it. Right role-playing began you know like truly because up to that point i'd played a few games with friends we've been playing a little bit of Traveller, and, and it looks like looking talking amongst friends and sort of doing our own archaeology that we've been playing some red box dnd i think i have a combination of the bx 1981 and a3 sets we were like very young and yet getting this box with that wonderful cover and then diving into it that was an immersion into art and ideas and it's always been very linguistic for me it's always been about the language and that sort of imagination that you form through description
1: i sort of categorize gamers Mm. by when they came into gaming but Mm. i also categorize them by style of Mm. gameplay there's a real split in the gaming community that happens early on Mm. the early Ders are also war gamers right and then when Advanced Dungeons & Dragons comes out, I mean, there are other games out by then, too, but mm. Advanced Dungeons & Dragons is really what took the market by storm. Yeah. Because TSR had more money than anybody else, basically. <laughs> but the new wave of gamers, they were just marketing to kids, really. Mm. Kids and, and college-age people. But the new wave didn't actually play war games. And so it really changes people's expectations of what they are going to experience in the game. Mm. Uh, and... and uh, they sort of expand. I call it nerfing because they just make the characters more powerful. Yeah. You go from you go from in a, in a zero d d you have a six sided die plus one for your hit points in the Greyhawk supplement. A year later, you have an eight sided die. This is for fighters. Yeah. And then in, in uh, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, you have a ten sided die. Yeah. Right. And so it's so get some... nerfed up a little bit.
0: Yeah, and you get barbarians as it would about twelve by the time we get later on in the hobby. So, <laughs>
1: yeah, and it's funny because I was looking at the internet and there was some guy complaining because his players felt like they, because they had specialized or, or were focusing on certain traits within their character, that they should get more bonuses. Right. You know, and it was just like, <laughs> like really, guys, like do you need to nerf yeah. it up even more? Like, you know, you've already got like as many hit points as a mid-level monster with your yeah. character. And you want more stuff?
0: Yeah. Well, I remember, I remember in the 80s, was, as, a, as our gaming group kind of um, grew, there were players who'd never done wargaming, who were role-playing. And yeah, that was the, the, the trajectory. You know, I remember getting into games like Rollmaster and then Palladium and all the way through, until I finally became so fed up with this kind of super heroic, weird cinematic i think is the term a lot of people use these days cinematic heroes that can do ridiculous things Uh, for me i just really enjoyed this sort of average person who was in a situation and had to sort of deal with it and that's what recently i think i found myself very much going back to and i don't know i just part of me feels that some of the modern games they're just so determined to sort of emulate computer games and film that they sort of lost the roots i don't know if that makes sense but
1: no i've been looking a lot at stuff like that like even with films uh and i think it has to do with with popular culture and so Mm. maybe we're just old grogs and we're not gonna get (laughs) maybe you know but like the way they made the lord of the rings and the way they made uh the hobbit you know Mm. i i actually refused to watch those films because i read I love those books, and I've read them a million times. Mm. And if you actually read the books, our characters are these tiny people going through this giant world with giant monsters and terrifying stuff, and they're, they aren't running around doing super heroic things. Mostly they're just kind of bumbling their way through it yeah. and sort of terrified. And, and I think that's sort of based off of, like, Tolkien was watching. I mean, he grew up on Errol Flynn movies, and... Mm. The early monster movies. Even if he never will admit to it, I'm sure he watched watched a lot of those movies, right? And and our generation, I don't know if you had like matinees over in England, but we would come home from school at three thirty or so in the afternoon, and there would be some black and white monster movie on. Yeah, yeah. And then and then the TV stations figured out this was in the 70s and or 60s, 70s. But even Arneson says the inspiration for him to create the dungeon, because he invented it, is in horror movies. He sat around on a weekend day watching monster movies on TV. And so really, that's one of the things I talked about on my blog, if you want to go into you know extensive ideas, but yeah. I'll just throw it out there. The, the, the dungeon concept is really rooted in gothic horror. And mm-hmm. so gothic horror, that whole era, even the era before that, it's like... People are small, even, I don't know, the earlier, earlier generations worried about getting a cold and dying. Interestingly yeah. enough, we circle these days.
0: I always felt that one of the appeals of the game when I started, when I think back on it, was it was an alternative to the sort of fear and uncertainty. I guess as a young teenage lad, I felt. But I could kind of experience that vicariously, I guess, through the game world, go in a different realm and fight these monsters that, you know, I guess for me, they were sort of subconsciously the bullies that got me at school and and all that sort of stuff, you know. (laughs) But but yeah, to feel weak and powerless and yet within the game world, you know you could achieve things you could do things and um and sort nice. of and and that was exciting to me and it still is i still want really to play very what we these days we were term as low powered games uh, and uh, and i guess that was what was watching the film again you know that was something that really struck me it, it resonated it reminded me of those roots if that makes sense but anyway enough for me
1: um <laughs> uh, uh, you know we're having a good conversation here no i think we're in, in agreement a lot of times it's hard to really be specific and explain mm. how we want to do that, you know. Because mm. I remember when I was a kid, the minute that the, the superhero champions came out, mm. all my f- friends were like, oh, this is awesome. We're going to play champions. So I would go, I was their dungeon master mm. and I would go down and I'd, I'd come into the room at, at the club that I'd started and they'd be playing champions already. And I'd watch them play champions and it just seemed kind of silly. Like I couldn't understand where is the story coming from? Because it seems like all you're doing is making super powered characters and then killing off super powered bad guys. And then now I realize that probably the way to run that would be more like a call of Cthulhu game Mm. where if you read Spider-Man, half the time he's just trying to figure out where the bad guy is. Yeah. Bad guys are sneaky, (laughs) you know. And that's another thing about like running a good RPG in a in a medieval setting. Mm-hmm. If you transpose that idea, like I was talking about the Gothic horror or even something like Spider-Man where you have mm-hmm. bad guys that are going around doing bad things, but they're sneaky. Half it is just finding out where they are, right? Instead of just showing up and bashing them and then we go back to, to the inn or whatever. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's interesting because you're, you're talking about traditional gaming is really my passion. So you're talking about my thing and, yeah. and, uh, I've been talking more and more, and one of the things I've noticed is the newer rules allow... I don't want to bash 5e, because 5e is what people are are getting now. Mm. You know, that's the standard. But the play method is sort of this attitude of, like, I come into a room, I roll dice for... I want to perceive something. Okay, now the DM has to tell me everything about it. And the sort of rules-free, the the free creature spiel, the true free free Kreech spiel is rules-free, rules and it's like, okay, you come into the room, and and and, we, and you have to say the magic words, which is what spawned this whole thing. You have to say, mm. I say, what do you want to do? Yeah. And the player's like, well, oh, what does it look like? And it's like, well, there's bricks. It's fitted bricks. But you can see one corner, it's sort of caved in, so it's almost like they built a room into a cave to make it look like a square room with these bricks that they must have brought in. And you can see water where there's a hole. You can see water dripping out. So the player's like, well, I'm going to, if that's over in the, the far left corner, I'm going to edge around to the right and I'm just going to start feeling my way along the wall. I'm going to keep my eye on that hole because I don't know what's in there. But I also want to check these balls. I'm going to be pushing on bricks and sort of feeling for what, you know, if there are any anomalies in this wall. And, and it's like, okay, so you, you come down, you go straight to your right at a 90 degree angle, and then you have another, you come to the corner and you turn. And, and you come along and you're pushing on the brooks and, and I might roll a die and give them a one in six or a two and six chance to find it on that part. Yeah, you push on this one and it's kind of loose and it's like, oh, okay. Can I push it in? And it's like, well, no, it doesn't seem to push in. Can I grip it with my fingernails and pull it out? Yeah, it like flips out like it's on a hinge and and you look in there and there's like a little brass ring in there that seems to be attached mm-hmm. to a, a chain. I mean, that's that's... That's traditional role playing. Yeah. We didn't do any, we're not doing any perception checks or any, you tell me what you're doing, I tell you what happens. And yeah. it's completely. Repetitive. I was talking to somebody else and I was saying, like, you can describe a smell. You're down in the dungeon. It smells like, uh, like decomposing leaves in a forest. Mm. Okay. And then you hear a dripping sound, but then you also hear. Further off in the distance what sounds like somebody moaning Mm. like some maybe in pain moaning and as you walk along like spider webs brush over your face and and actually a spider actually lands on your head you know Mm. but it it, this is all very immersive stuff right it's like reading a a book yeah Mm -hmm.
0: what's that i was i was gonna say i um yeah, there's two things that have really struck me recently, and I think um, a recent episode I was talking about slowing down. And I think yes. an awful lot of play is about, it's about rushing on. I've got I've got a three hour session, and I've got to get to this point. So I'm, we're gonna, you know, you run down the, your stairs, and you're down the passageway, and you're in a room, and there's some doors to the left and right. What do you want to do? Or we could really slow down like you've just illustrated. you know we can we can experience that and we can describe that. And I think we yeah. can engage what a fellow podcaster, Geckkul Minion is, over in Japan said, there's this idea oh, yeah. that it's like, it's like a novel. It's like you know when you're reading a novel and the way your imagination is engaged by the written word, but it's spoken. And I think there is so much richness there.
1: My, my girlfriend is like a phenomenal reader. She reads over a hundred books a year. Yeah, we got fifty-two weeks in a year, and she's reading like two books <laughs> a, year, a week. Correct. Heavy, heavy literature, you know. <laughs> and she talks about that with me too. It's like when when you find something you really enjoy, yeah. you actually slow down reading, and you might yeah. even like read a sentence and think about the words and, and...
0: I appreciate the art of it as well, you know. And I think a lot of GMs, the ones that have engaged me, they're the ones who do do that. They slow and they they make you marvel at their efficiency in what they can yeah. convey
1: yeah it's a learned thing though too well like what I was doing those examples I was just trying to show the idea of immersion and inter- the, the interactive immersion yeah. it's not just you're not just being told a story and you're yeah. just sitting back passively and then the referee stops and everybody rolls dice and then it's like okay well it's gonna go over here you have gotta engage with this thing and you have gotta ask questions if you want to be successful sometimes you need to ask more questions and like you're saying it slows mm-hmm. it down so maybe we're spending a half an hour on on one room just exploring it.
0: And it's okay because you know we're going to come we're going to play for a few hours and then we're going to come back another time and another time right. and another and it doesn't necessarily have to have a you know a sort of a worry about the uh, ending, you know, we're going to play as long as we're engaged.
1: I think the engagement is the most critical element in, and that's why I worry about or I don't worry I just that's why I think that people maybe aren't playing in the traditional manner, because they're, they're, doing, they're doing too much engagement with, um, like what you're saying, I want to speed it up, I want to kill these guys, I want to get to the next room, we got to find the treasure that's in a box somewhere, behind a wall mm. somewhere, we got to rush this, but at the same time, everything we're doing is coming off of our character sheet, instead of, like what I described, well, you're interacting with the environment, you're looking for a secret door. Um you you know you have to find the brick that's loose to be able to find the ring that you pull that releases the door. Or maybe you come to a, a pit and and you realize that in the previous room there was like a twelve foot long, big, heavy plank, and you can run back there and grab that plank and use it to place over the pit so that you guys can just run over the pit without going in. And that's not on your character sheet. it's something you're discovering in the environment. A good good referee puts things in the environment that you can use. And it's not a thing of like I'm going to plan it so they have to do this. It's just like there's stuff around and the players mm-hmm. can use the stuff.
0: I have to confess that that has not been the way that I played For a very long while. And like I said, coming back to watching the film was where it all sort of re-resonated, kind of reconnected me to something that I'd forgotten about way, way back when I was playing in that way in the 80s. And then some, I don't know where, but somehow kind of got sucked into Who, I guess, or carried along in this. I I feel like it was a quest for ever more sort of detail within my game the real joy of the detail i feel increasingly again is in the world and the setting i prefer to call it the world these days you know it actually has a sense of of being i'm hesitating to say anything around the world real because it isn't very verisimilitude it's the sense of reality it's a sense of something being true if that makes sense and yeah. You know, recently I started using the old school essentials, which is a restatement of like basic D&D. And I noticed how we were spending most of our time really describing and interacting and very little time, you know, rolling dice or worrying about what was on the sheet, as you have alluded to a minute ago. And it was marvellous, absolutely marvellous in a way that I didn't expect.
1: Systems where not just 5e, but other newer systems, they really game up the player. And so instead of thinking like, okay, well, maybe we can tie the rope to this tree over here and throw it over. And, and maybe the thief can go over there and tie it to the other side and we'll all get across the pit or whatever strategy you're coming up with. They're just like, oh, yeah, I got the ability to levitate five mm-hmm. times a day. Levitate, you guys shove me over there. So, yeah, the players aren't really playing off their character sheet if they're just using equipment. You know what's on your character sheet. If it's equipment, like, oh, yeah, I think I have a 10-foot pole, or, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. I think I have spikes. Like, when you have a party encounter a problem that isn't a combat, and they've got to solve it somehow yeah. using resources, um, it's always fun as a DM to watch them, or as a referee, um, watch them interacting together and talking to each other, trying to mm-hmm. resolve the problem. And they're like, well, I think, I, I think I've got a sack. You know, I think I've got a this. I think I've got a that. <laughs> Um, And I had my players go to the extreme of leaving the dungeon because they found a really large room with some kobolds that were defending this area. Kobolds aren't stupid, chaotic evil types or evil (laughs) types. When you start to win, they run down the back passage. They always have an escape to the next room. Four kobolds there, so the three kobolds scurry down to the room with the four kobolds at seven. You show up. And they leave that room. They go to the next room. There's 12 in that room. And so like like the players, the deeper they go, the players are like, Oh, and then before long, it's like, okay, we gotta get out of here. There's like 30 kobolds. <laughs> and the players are being chased out of the dungeon. But anyway, they had found this room with this balcony. It was sort of the beginning of the kobold area. And the kobolds had a ballista up there, and there were little mm-hmm. foot traps. And, you know, I'd ask people where they were running, and there were traps that would do like one hit point damage on their foot. And yeah. Like spike traps. These kobolds had the ballista, and there were just four of them, and then two of them had bows. Somehow I was rolling hot. I had a mm-hmm. party of, I think, 10 characters. It was like the paladin, the two fighters, and the cleric all go down. They're all armored and plate mail. Yeah. So I'm rolling 17 <laughs> and just nailing them. So they were like, okay, this sucks. We're leaving. This was like the second room. If you, you know, this one dungeon, you go one way in and yeah. end up in old hell. They ran into a problem they couldn't solve because there was a balcony mm. and the kobolds were just thrashing them. So they went and they left the dungeon and they came back and they had this big plank. They built this bridge. They, had a, they hired a man, a craftsman in the town, and yeah. they used their gold to buy this siege ramp, yeah. plank thing that was about 12 feet long. So they literally carry an object into the dungeon to use to get around <laughs> and they leave it behind in the dungeon. But that's that sort of creative thought where it's like, I don't have it with me, but I know what I need. I'm going to go back out of the dungeon and go back. Um, So I I do a lot of role playing, like town role playing, which doesn't involve any maps or anything. But it's a lot of just having to do with needing resources or people needing Mm. them to do things. And that's that's that off your sheet stuff. It's not Mm. on the sheet. You can't get out of this by using your character sheet.
0: Yeah it's not just about the character is it? It's about the player themselves solving yeah. the problem through their character and through their interaction in that world.
1: It's funny because there is that level of metagaming. Everybody mm. plays. I don't care who it is. They're like, I'm playing my character. I'm in my role. I'm doing what I, <laughs> do. you know, and it's like, no, no, nah, nah, you're not, you, you know, yeah. you're, not, you're not, you're just playing yourself on a yeah. certain level. And then like, a character has an IQ of seven and a wisdom of three, but I happen to be the one that's really clever at solving problems. So every time the party runs into a problem, I'm the one <laughs> like, oh, we need to get a couple of these. And there was this other thing in this other room, and we're going to do this and that. We're gonna... And suddenly the moron character is the one that's solving all the problems. But it's fun.
0: I think we've almost partially answered this question, but I wanted to ask you if there was sort of something we could do to most improve uh, our experience of role-playing games at the table. Yeah, what is that in your mind?
1: I like to compare it to watching films, actually. Like, I really like, I like some mm-hmm. pretty ponderous films. I'm really, mm-hmm. like, I, I did a d film, so you think I'm going to be, like, into all these superhero movies and stuff, but I'm actually just, like, a total, like, weird art film fanatic. <laughs> and the weirder the better. Yeah, And a lot of that, what the, uh, the directors are doing in the films is they're lowering the, the level of, of, of stimulus Mm-hmm. So you'll watch and it might take 20 minutes before something interesting happens. And even, well, even alien is perfect. You lower the level of stimulus, but you're introducing little elements that are worrisome. You, you people go down onto the planet and they come back. Yeah. To the, hey, this is bad. Something bad might've happened. What are we mm-hmm. doing? You know? And that's winding the clock the tension in the spring. Mm-hmm. And so, I think as a, as a player, you need to be able to relax, not be bored. There's sort of a self-hypnosis element within a game. Yeah. And so you need, you need to – it's like meditation. You're just clearing your head of, of noise until you can relax. Because when you watch a movie that nothing exciting is happening, you start to be critical of it and you start to internalize. And so you have to go through the stage where you're internalizing and thinking and rationalizing Mm. To sort of a breakthrough to this point where you're just sensing.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and so it's, it's, it's actually a learned process if you're watching a difficult sort of film. It doesn't just hand everything to you, like maybe like a Tarkovsky film. I don't know if you've seen any Tarkovsky mm. films. Like Stalker. I mean, Stalker is the ultimate Dungeons & Dragons adventure movie. But it's ponderous. And he does that. You've got to like understand how to shut yourself down until you're in a, a sensory state. And so I think with role-playing games, there may be some sort of element of needing to do that. Players show up and they want something to happen right away. And so in a way, it's, it's kind of what you were talking about with the slow it down. Okay, mm-hmm. We're going um, to slow down. Everybody's going to relax. We're going to slow down and we're going to be mm-hmm. very precise about what we're doing. We're going to be precise about our language. We're going to listen to the language that's being used so that we're very clear on what we're doing. And maybe that will allow us to get immersed more deeply
0: it's interesting because I, I was talking the other day about somebody about how a really engaging role-playing game for me is is a lot like when you try to meditate you know, you know the idea of coming into the present state so you're focused yeah. on what is happening and what your character is doing what you are doing within that game and Everything else gets shut out, doesn't it? You know, you let go of all your baggage that you had in the day before, and you stop worrying about what's coming tomorrow. And instead, you are, in a sense, you enter the the place and the time and what that character is doing, and try and imagine that. And I find that is when I lose track of time, and that's when I become really excited about what's going on. and And then all those things you're talking about about building tension and all you know, all that works because we're yeah. here. You know, and our phone is ignored and we are here now in that room with the dripping water and I'm running my hand down at wall. And, uh, yeah. and that's almost meditative to me. It's an amazing thing.
1: It's funny because you said, you know, you said, we're in that hall with the dripping water. I got an image. Mm. My hand is touching out and touching it. I get an image and it's different mm. from yours. But we're getting these images that are sort of the yeah. same.
0: I find that there's I have two types of games that I enjoy playing that are using role playing kind of techniques if you like and, and one of the i mean the one i've done the most i suppose is is very like that very tactile you know if i play on fantasy grounds my uh, current dungeons of style game it uses gurps uh, as a rule system which is absolutely the antithesis of what we're talking about and i can see them moving their pawns through the dungeon and that is a game and that that is i suppose connecting back to the wargaming roots that i have in that visual tactile sense but what i most enjoy i think is when all of that is gone you know the yeah. other day i was playing in dolmanwood you know, i'm playing gavin norman's um setting there you know which is a sort of quite primal uh, mythic and folklorish kind of a world you know we we're wandering through the tangled forests of dolmanwood on little track and that was purely descriptive and I found myself in that state of flow and immersion so much more than I do when I'm sort of running the guys through that map. That being yeah. said, there's, there's nothing wrong with the, to my mind, with the battle map e fight-y game. But it isn't the same experience at all. It is a very different experience and, and one which, um, I guess, you know, just has a different purpose fundamentally yeah, that yeah. was much more a knockabout bit of a laugh kill some, kill some zombies kind of game you know whereas what we're talking about is an immersive steady experience of the world that we're creating together
1: I think the difference between Arneson's adventure game and what comes later mm. they kind of go full circle they start out with hex based games by Avalon mm. Hill mm. so you, you so you're moving you know I can move this many squares units yeah, and then I face this way, and then you move this many units, and you face that way, and then we roll dice to see who hits. Mm. And that's war gaming. Yep. And then so you go go into their weird uh, miniatures games where now, you know, they're doing things within they're in, they're affecting the environment. Your unit is hiding in the woods, and so it hasn't been placed on the field. And you yeah. you've, you've said, well, i I've, I've sent two guys to the edge of the wood just to keep an eye out. You know, or there's a river and you can't cross it, but you notice that there's a barn. And and so you're like, well, can we tear the barn apart to make a bridge over the river that's too deep or running too fast? Because we've got cannons. Maybe the infantry could get over there, but the cannons aren't going to be able Mm. to do it. They're just going to sink. So it's like, yeah, you build a bridge. So you've now you've, you know, your enemy thought, oh, well, I'm safe because he's over on the other side of the river. And it's like, oh, crap, I can see them building a bridge. I got to deal with that now, (laughs) you know? But all of that, and then, and then you go from that leading up to Wesley's Brownstein, where he's yeah. saying, you are who you are, and you can do what you want to do. And, and Wesley's game is really much more of a role-playing game, if you want to say role, than mm. if you want to sort of look at the semantic, I am this person, you are that person, mm. idea of playing a role, which is why I call it the character-driven game, character-driven RPG. And so, at that point, you're already... You're using markers to sort of say, well, I'm on this side of town, or I'm over in that building talking to mm. this person down in the town square, mm. talking to so-and-so. But you are an individual, and you're acting as an individual, and, and you are negotiating with other people and mm. getting to know other people's characters, you know, all the way up to to when Arneson invents Blackmore, and now you are a person engaged completely with your environment. Mm. And it's a group of you engaged completely with the environment. But he also did a lot of mixing of play styles within Blackmore. Mm-hmm. And so there's an early stage. There wasn't any time in the movie to talk about it. But there's an early stage where he's playing sort of a Brownstein. So David mm-hmm. McGarry is the first thief. Yeah. And uh, Dan Nicholson is the town merchant. Mm-hmm. And so they're having this war. Like the town, It turns out, after a while, they figure out that everybody they talk to that's selling anything is actually being played by Dan Nicholson, but he's playing a different person. Right. And they figure out that Dan is just running like a mafia that's like this, <laughs> this monopoly on all sales of anything in the town. So you can't yeah. get a deal on anything. <laughs> and so McGarry and uh, plots to steal to break in and steal his stash under his warehouse. <laughs> you know, and so that's a player versus player, but they didn't they would play player versus player more in terms of like I'm gonna take your stuff yeah. instead of I'm gonna assassinate you. They sort of played the good guys, so there was sort of an understood rule, I'm not going to be totally bad. And then there was Sukup and, and another guy, I think it might have been Belfry, they played the wizard and the Balrog that ruled the dungeon below Blackmore Castle, and then later they escaped the dungeon because the players go down there and chase him out. And so what they did, they didn't really play in the game as much as just call Dave up and scheme and... You know, we work for the Egg of Coot, the evil Sauron type guy, and we're gonna move a bunch of troops down here and invade this town. So the players would get rumors like, oh yeah, the town next door has been raided by the Egg of Coot's minions and you know and sacked. So that's building tension for the players because it's a real living world. You're in the town and you think going to the dungeon and getting treasure is a cool thing. Meanwhile, the egg of coot is coming closer. So he's kind of doing multiple levels, and then there was another guy Fred Funk, he decided he wanted more than anything to be the king of the orcs. And so Arneson allowed him to design part of the dungeon. There's the famous orkian way. You can open a secret door and there's a staircase, a wide staircase that goes down. (laughs) And it takes you to the 10th level of the dungeon. And that's where all the orcs are. And basically what they usually do is they just, they don't just kill the players. They just take all their stuff and leave them naked at the (laughs) first level it says you know it's not about killing him it's just like the dragon he's like enamored with the princess and he just takes her away and so then it's up to us to go kill the dragon and get the princess Mm -hmm. back so you've got a lot of mechanics like that we're not just going to kill the players yeah uh just do stuff and i do that a lot too like players get really attached to magic items it's like well somebody more powerful just showed up and they're demanding that you give them your magic item yeah. there isn't a lot you can do about it because they're like the 20th level whatever and you're a third level whatever and those are good lessons for players the idea of permanence mm-hmm. and sort of dallas D dallas <laughs> and everything is a flux but it, yeah i'm going off but i, I arneson ran a, a very complete world and most gamers run static worlds by a module and and everything that's in the module is just they're just rooms with sort of mannequins in position waiting to move and when you get page, you read the description and it comes to life for the players briefly for a few seconds. Whereas Arneson's characters look like the bad guys, they're down there and they're plotting and scheming. And if you don't go to the dungeon for three weeks, well, they're restocking and rebuilding mm. and, restocking and and it's going to yeah. be different.
0: And that for me was the path back to this style of playing. You know, I started to recover that i remember a couple of years ago running the actually dungeon zones fifth edition but surprising my players because i was uh, making sure like there's a goblin hold with lots of goblins in different positions but they all started to do the thing you described with the kobold you know like fall back form a group yeah. repel the invaders which is exactly what any you know real community of creatures would do isn't it you don't allow them in and let them take you out piecemeal you sort of set a trap and you lay that yeah, trap yeah. and you surround them and And you isolate them. And if you don't, if you can get away without killing them, you probably will, you know, can we ransom them out? Can we force them out? Can we drive them out? And I remember players at the time being quite surprised by that. And then, more recently, you know, it's this thing of I've had multiple groups going into the same dungeon, that dungeon of thal I'm, I'm talking about, multiple groups going in. So each group is going down and changing things. And then the next group, they get rumours about what got changed. And then they right. have to go in and deal with the consequences. And I actually had groups like stashing things in the dungeon, another group coming along and finding it and taking it. And then the first group goes back in right. the dungeon and goes, hang on a minute, the monsters have stolen our stuff. And I'm thinking, no, actually, the other players stole your stuff. And, and for me, oh, this no, has yeah. become hugely rich world and then that's what's led me to well why am i overcomplicating this actually that interaction of different groups of players and and that setting in, in that place is just so rich and I, I guess it's kind of letting go isn't it like just allowing that to happen you know the side effect for me was very low prep i set up a situation and i let the players miss around in it and and react to it
1: yeah i think well and that's interesting too because i see a lot of people get really obsessive about prep You're giving players sort of like triggers with the descriptions. You know, there's a box over there. There's a table over there. And it's like, okay, well, I'm going to go over and look at the table. Okay, well, you can do the tiniest little thing and players will launch off on something like what you're describing. It's kind of amazing. And that's the whole point. The players are building the world as they explore it. It doesn't exist really until they get there.
0: Yeah, until you describe it and they describe it, I guess. Well, they ask the question. That's another tool, isn't it? Like allowing the players to ask the questions and be led by that. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel always that they sort of sketch it briefly and see what they go for. I would say my players, you've got two jobs. You decide what you do and how you do it. And you can ask questions. And basically that's kind of what it comes down to. You know, those three things. What are you doing? How are you doing it? And ask questions. Actually, when you think about it, that's the sort of core of the conversation. And then you as a GM respond to that. I don't think all the referee, you know, it's, it's an interesting dynamic.
1: You know, it's interesting, too, because I find as a referee, it's always disappointing when players are not very sophisticated in their play. Mm. And, and, and one of the things that I always like, even recently, I had these gnolls and I was like, the gnolls have something you want. And maybe you can, like, intimidate them. Like, sure, they're bad guys, but they're gnolls, and there's only six of them, and there's 12 of you guys. You should be able to just intimidate. Like, we will let you live if you just sell us that map you've got. Yeah, They just slaughtered the gnolls. I guess that's murder hobo behavior. Yeah, But I'm always disappointed in the lack of sophistication in play with a lot of groups I play with. And yeah, there doesn't I, demand for more sophistication.
0: I am... Um... I game a lot with teenagers uh, as a school teacher. I run a game club and they come along to play D&D. And right now it's fifth edition. But I noticed this trend of new players. It's about the killing. You know, I want to get in there and I want to kill stuff. And then after a while, they kind of get that out of the system. And then they start to engage more with the world. And if they stick around long enough to do that, that's when they ultimately get hooked. And I don't know what it is, but there's, it's a lot of fun to fight battles. And I've done my fair share of that in my inner time. But I also feel like when you actually start treating the world as a thing in itself to be treated as if it was truly there and, yeah. and you start to negotiate with the monsters and you start to, like those things you describe and negotiate and intimidate and deal. Can we do a deal with you guys? I have a, right. a memory of a group—I know a couple of years ago now, two, three years ago—who basically hired the goblin, local goblin tribe to deal with a problem.
1: And that's sophisticated that's, play, yeah, though.
0: Yeah, li- yeah, and to deal with this other problem they had, you know, they had some um, orcs or whatever, and they decided that the, the goblins plus them would be able to deal with this orc problem. And it was again, it was really about intimidation. Our army's a bit bigger than yours. Go away, right? You know? And yeah, and I enjoyed that. And I think, yeah, again, I feel like it's well, I guess my point is. I feel like it's kind of like the very beginning of this it's kind of fun to swing your sword around and kill things but you stick around there's there's more and it's that teenager thing i see that and i see adults who start do that i don't know whether it's just a natural progression you start in these games and you start with kill things and you just move i don't know
1: (laughs) yeah well i also got you know when you've been playing a long time after a while you get i mean there's only so much you can do in a dungeon Mm. there's only so much you can do in the wilderness and so i've kind of like my campaign really revolves around this idea of, and it actually comes from just a lot of, a lot of different sources, from RPGs mm. to literature. You know, even thinking of, like, have you ever read The Nine Princes in Amber, the Amber series? I haven't, actually. I have to confess. Oh, that's great, because it's, it's these princes that live. It, it's just all about reality, and so these princes have the power to imagine their surroundings and alter them. And so they yeah. travel through different planes of existence as they imagine different things. But they have to be moving, so they, they move, and they imagine that like on the other side of that building, there's going to be a forest, and then when I go in the forest, there's going to be mist, and I'll be just like walking through space, and then yeah. weird stuff. <laughs> and so I, I really have gone off. I'm creating settings for my players that are not traditional. like there's one that I'm waiting to spring on them, but it's just like, sort of like the little prince-like planets. And then it has its own logic. like if you're not touching the planet, then there's no air. But if you're touching it, somehow there's air. You know, you don't have to explain it. But you can, like, you know, you're standing on one. There's light coming from this big orb over there that's like the sun. But these orbs are they're the size of maybe a house round. And so when you stand on it, you're on this curve. You know, and then there are ships that sail around. They magically just sail through this space on, on some wind that float through the air. Or you can have a planet nearby and maybe we can tie our two fifty 50-foot ropes together and toss it over there and try to hook something. And then we hold our breath and go along the rope to the other little round planet. And then you open the door, and maybe there is a dungeon. And the dungeon is bigger. It's sort of like the Doctor Who lease box. You know, it's bigger. <laughs> it's bigger on the inside than the outside. So there's a bigger dungeon on the inside. So I'm ready to spring that setting on them. And then also because I've been running Taunusborg, which is Dick Greg Svenson's really old dungeon. I'm so really hungry like... to get that <laughs> as I'm a so background. So it's, it's taking forever, and part of it is that. There's a bottleneck on labor, mm-hmm. and, that's, and, the, and that bottleneck is me. I was up till three less yeah. editing a new trailer because we're trying to market the movie, finally, yeah. like market it completely so that anybody can get it. And we're dead broke. Like, I, I have, I think, $500 in my bank account right now. <laughs> i got to work on So I did the trailer last night, and I'm sort of working on Tannisborg, and I'm completely ADD, so it's like really, it's hard for me to focus on things. But it is coming, and, it, and it's good. Yeah. But yeah, I'm adding all these things to Taunusborg that you step through these gates in Taunusborg. They're not in the book, but I, I'm going to just post a lot of it online for people to just have free mm. if they're Tarnisborg dungeon masters. You know, another one is is I have the Enchanted Forest, the Fairy Forest, and that is where it's like a forest, and it's always winter time, mm. and it's inhabited by a lot of different creatures. It's just different because there is no linearity. So like, if you find a path and you start walking down the path. Sometimes it leads to one place. Sometimes it leads to another and there's no logic behind it. It's just you enter and it's, you're just going to go where the dice take you.
0: Do players respond to that sort of thing? Well, I guess they just go with it.
1: Well, I, I keep springing weirdness on my players. When I got back into gaming, I I had really missed it. There was something Mm. missing, you know, Mm -hmm. and and it was that Mm -hmm. magical thing you're talking about, that enchantment of being in a different place so I joined a group that was playing Pathfinder. I'd never played Pathfinder, and that's a story right. to itself. And so I got kind of bored with that. But I really liked the core mechanic of Pathfinder, of, yeah. of having a chart that you get bonuses off of compared to your attribute. So I made my own little chart, and I just started this D20 system where everybody had their six attributes. Mm. I had the little bonus chart, and I've played, played so many d D&D games that the rest is just I can just make it up on the spot and so I made this setting that was like a luxury space resort space station floating over the world of Tecumel from Empire of the Petal Throne Mm -hmm. but at the same time it was this space station when Tecumel got thrown into its little pocket universe this space station was right where the rift was and so there are places on the space station where you walk out into a field and suddenly it gets darker and suddenly you're in a marsh and then Mm. you're on a floating island and it floats off and in the distance you can see this beautiful city that's made out of like crystals like quartz crystals or something Mm. And and you float up and you can go through the gate and you're in there and there are these people who live there and they look like what somebody would look like if you were looking through a crystal you're seeing them from multiple angles they never really take on a solid form that you can understand they're just kind of eyes so i had all these different planes and then there was you know the plane it it all revolves around this mythology about how the elves are actually evil and how the goblins are this devolved race goblins are actually the true elves but they've like over like fifty thousand years they've become these hunched horrible figures and the elves have chased them into the caves but really they were the true rulers of the world and sort of this idea of the good and evil thing, like you were saying, we don't have to mm. kill it, we to do it, you to do it. And so like, now you understand why the dwarves don't like the elves, because the dwarves are actually allied with these ancient like, Gebelian mm. people. And so the elves released this magic that was like a magic nuclear bomb that creates this rift between all the worlds. Mm. The players are having to go between these rifts. They're easy enough mm. to find, we'll know about them. And it sort of kind of ties in with the movie Stalker. Mm-hmm. that's kind of the premise is that the aliens show up on earth and they just kind of hang out for a while and they leave and the stuff they leave behind is this mysterious weird crap mm-hmm. and where the aliens landed is cordoned off and, and they call it the zone because mm-hmm. whatever the aliens did on earth there has created this completely supernatural reality like on like that the arthur c Clarke idea of like mm-hmm. you know so high that to us it looks like magic yeah and we'll so go into the zone seeking things
0: I'm interested in just a slight rewind you said that there was a time when you sort of came out of gaming and you missed it so oh yeah so what what, what brought you back was there a longing or was there some other trigger
1: you start gaming when you're a teenager and you've got a lot of time the weekend comes mm. and my game club would start somewhere between Ten and noon, and go till four. Mm-hmm. You know. yeah. Like you, whenever you showed up, people would pop in and they'd grab yeah. the character into the, yeah. the session. And so every Saturday, it was at least six hours of D anD. d And then sometimes during the week, you'd go to your friend's house and he'd just solo through your dungeon. So like there was one guy in my game that was like a ninth level thief because he could solo easily because he was always hiding from things. The rest of the party were all mostly like six, fourth through sixth level because they mm-hmm. were just getting. <laughs> and it's OD and d and all the pre d stuff is just so yeah. brutal and we got used to that it was just like okay i guess i got to pull up mm-hmm. another character. <laughs> yeah um, so you hit that stage where you're doing the career you're doing the kids you're doing the friendship stuff and so you don't have as much time or i kind of came back to it i don't know what the longing is i think i just wanted to part of it is i like to invent stories and so like creating these sorts of stories and places and things like that so uh, it, you know years of thinking Mm. and part of it is because part of my career was being in a situation where i was just alone and thinking Mm. i would do my tasks but i was alone and thinking at night Mm. so i had all these piled up stupid ideas to you know (laughs) like i would daydream gaming alone yeah and so i think that kind of brought me back to it i was just like yeah i'm ready to unleash this stuff on my players
0: yeah i feel like i mean i've been asked in the past you know why don't you write novels that there's something about the shared experience, the shared narrative of it, I guess, that kind of is emerging through what we're doing that is so much richer. Um, and I guess we've come almost full circle in that, the, the value of the dialogue and, you know, really immersing yourself in that detail. But for me, all the time, I'm called back to, I want to sit with some people and, and visit somewhere, explore somewhere.
1: Yeah. As a player... I kind of have like really high expectations because I want the mm-hmm. referee to be better than I am, or at least weirder than I am. <laughs> and so I have a hard time finding referees that will create enough stuff that keeps me fixated. Like, I don't know if my players are, like you were saying, like, are your players liking what you're doing? And I don't know, maybe liking what I'm doing. Well, they're
0: showing up, I guess. That's the main thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I always take... I mean, no matter
0: what my players say to me over the years, you know, oh, no, the reason I'm not coming is because of X, Y, and Z busy thing. But I've always read it as if they're at the table and they keep coming back to the table, you're doing something right. Because in the end, yeah. I, f- I feel like they'll make time if they want to come back, you know, to that place. Yeah.
1: I uh, mean, I have an interesting group because I have some players that have, like, Rosa played on, on the internet, so she mm. played the computer version of D&D. Mm. Mike uh, is, used to be a soap opera actor, but he had never played mm-hmm. D&D. It. He's into it. And he doesn't know the rules. And because we're <laughs> playing OD&D, I'm having to make rules to deal with what he's doing, because he's yeah. playing the cleric. He's really mm. interacting with his deity by praying mm-hmm. and being. for him. It was like, oh, I'm being a really bad referee. I need to come up with a rule to deal with this so that he can get rewarded. Or he can interact yeah. with his city and create that experience during our mm. sessions. Mm. So, yeah, so it's a different... Uh, I have a very different group than I used to have because it used to be like all a bunch of nerds that all had the rule books. Yeah. None of them have the rules I'm playing, and half of it is home-ruled. Mm. And so they're very trusting of my mm. rulings during the game. Of, yeah. of what we're doing, you were talking about coming back to the hobby, and I don't know, like what brings you back. I think it's just it's that, like you were saying, it's like you know why what why would you why don't you write a novel? And it's like, well, I want to live the novel. Mm. And our us RPGers, we're living the novel when we play, whether we're the referee or the, the players, you know. Mm. And then the other thing I do think is interesting is for older players coming back, and as a DM, as a referee. Like that's one of the things we're writing into Borg. I hope people find the text for Borg interesting because about fifty percent of the text is about being a referee and right. training your players to do better. I am trying to encourage my players to run more like sort of a medieval commando raid. Yeah. And so it's like you come down the passage and you can see the outline of a door, maybe only mm. off in the dark. So your lights are very dim. Mm. You've been around a campfire. The, the firelight is really only good for about 10 to 15 feet. And then it just, Yeah things. you're almost better off being out in the darkness looking at the fire because you can see the outlines of things.
0: Uh, it's an interesting thing about the commando raid because I was talking to, uh, I think it's Douglas Cole who um, writes an awful lot for Steve Jackson games and has his own company now. But he was talking about how He does a lot of sort of modern era gaming. And he was saying about how essentially the counterterrorism raid on a building or whatever is so similar to the dungeon room. Flashbang in the door, smash in the door, in we go. That kind of, if you're going to have that kind of encounter and suppression of the opponent and get their stuff.
1: It comes from wargaming. When even if you're doing Mm. playing without miniatures in a traditional manner, you are still role playing because it's this much force versus that much force. Now, if you're a 50 50 or if each of you is, you know, 10 yeah whatever value of 10 strength how can we augment our 10 well we send the thief down Mm -hmm. we don't go marching down there because we make too much noise as a group (laughs) so we send the thief down and we're maybe 30 feet back and the thief listens and and explores and also the thief is checking the tunnel making sure there's not a pit or anything or something's going to fall from the ceiling maybe the thief triggers it and you you you've got a second thief because your first <laughs> you rock falling out of the ceiling but the thief goes up and listens and comes back and is like okay I listen to the door I don't understand what they're saying it sounds like there's yeah. three of them you know and the dwarf's like well I know a couple languages let me let me go down there and see what I can do so the dwarf goes yeah. down Oh, oh uh-huh. dwarf comes back and I'm like oh those are definitely trolls it's troll language uh-huh. it's similar languages I know those are trolls in there. It's just like, there's, I, you were wrong. I think there's five of them in there. <laughs> you know. Well, now you know what you're up against. And so like, you know, in the old school way, of course, uh, I don't know. Well, you go from there, you know? Yeah. And, and so, like, even stairwells, I think it's interesting. If you look at the Tannis maps and Arneson's Blackmore maps, they're drawn like medieval castles or, or ancient catacombs. Mm-hmm. So most of the stairwells are, might be five feet wide. Yeah. A lot of times, you can have one guy go up, pound on the door, run back. The monsters open the door. They see one guy. The guy is like nah, 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 runs up the stairs. <laughs> you know, and the monsters are like, "We're gonna get him!" And they come running after him. Well, your party is assembled around the top of the stairs, and as the monsters come up, you can rain down destruction because you got like six guys standing around the top, beating, beating these. You know, this one creature that's coming up this five-foot path. <laughs> the whole idea of attack and counterattack. I just think there's a variety of encounters that can be had that are just fun. My most memorable games as a, as a referee and as a player were when we found something that was just too tough and now yeah. we're running away and it's just, you know, and I, and you know, <laughs> like in the movie, like uh, Bob Meyer talks, describes, he's like, when the Balrog came through the door, we had guys that were holding, you know, and he's like, Basically saying like, yeah, some of the guys were holding the door, the rest of the guys were leaving the dungeon, yeah, and like you know, four guys stayed behind to try to slow down the Balrog, and they all (laughs) lost their characters heroically. Mm. And so, so I think that that's something you can train players into doing, Mm. or understanding that there are different. It's not just we open the door, we roll, you know, we roll dice. There, there are tactical benefits to, to concentration of power. There's there's a tactical benefit to having information. Yeah. So we we're gonna stand here. This the, there's a four-way intersection. We're gonna send the thief up and have him peek around the corner and tell us what's down each way. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And and then like, yeah, I don't see anything either any of those directions. We're good. So then the party moves up to the to the four-way intersection. Mm. Then we start exploring each way. And it's slowing down. It's like what you were talking about, a slowing down, but now we're playing in the dungeon like people who are terrified of losing our lives because this place is full of horrific, yeah. terrifying creatures that will tear your head off.
0: Yeah. I, I wanted to kind of round off by asking, you know, the audience of this is supposed to be, in theory anyway, You know, people who uh, played before, back in the day, don't play now, want to come back. To your mind, you know, what should they do? Where should they start? What would you What would you suggest?
1: What I did was I at the time this was before Five E had happened, mm-hmm. and so I was playing the current thing, which was Pathfinder. Mm-hmm. It didn't really suit my old sens- sensibilities, mm-hmm. and so then I looked at my OD and D books, and I came up with that sort of D twenty mechanic, and I ran that campaign on the space mm-hmm. station, yep. and, and over the planet of, of Tekumel. Mm-hmm. So that was one way was just to sort of adapt to what I was familiar with. I think just go back to the system you like, just do that. And I've lured players to my group. It's funny because I hear people say like, "Oh, it's hard to find players. It's hard to find players." I got to turn people away because all I got to do is say, "Yeah, yeah, we're playing in the old way. We're playing the way we played in the yeah. 70s." People are like, "Really? Yeah. What's that like?" <laughs>
0: Come,
1: Come and play. play. Yeah, and then, I mean, I, I ran a game at the local bar, and it's a little noisy there, so the immersion wasn't really right. Yeah. My house my house group is like, yeah, let's play, you know. Mm. And I, I let people come in, sit in, different sessions. I yeah. have a pool of about ten players, maybe, and so I'll just put out the word, and usually there's five to seven players that can make it, so we mm. can together. I just think that, that playing in the traditional manner, with the original rules... And as a referee, to understand that these games are actually uh, conceptual, uh, and and they're and they're very abstract, and we don't need special rules to deal with those situations. Mm, brilliant. Um, thank you.
0: Anyway. Can, can I just can yeah. I just say I'm going to do the fanboy thing and just say thank you so much for producing Secrets of Blackmoor. You know, absolutely oh, sure. loved it. And um, I mean, I know it's been what seven years or something in the making. Uh, about six and a
1: half to seven years yeah.
0: now. Yeah. But I mean, um, thank you, because what you've what you've managed to uncover and what we've just been talking about, you know, is a richness that I think might have just been forgotten um, if you hadn't. Yeah. done. So thank you. And oh, it's sure. secrets, secrets of com, right? That's what we need.
1: Yeah, to we're on Vimeo. You can go on Vimeo and look for uh, Secrets of Blackmore on Vimeo. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a page there where you can rent the movie, but you can also just watch the trailer. Mm. Uh, my big thing is—is is actually, it's—it's, it's, you know, people talk a lot about, uh, uh, like you know, the gamer community and support mm. and all this. And uh, on Twitter, I'm always retweeting people's stuff, and I'm like, look, everybody, you got to retweet this retweet, yeah. because these people need support. And I'm really trying to, to, to beat into people's heads the idea that you know, if you don't tell your friend about our movie, or you don't tell your friend about that weird obscure game, mm. those mm. people. Be able to do that anymore, you know, like so mm. so my big thing is is like, you know, find the trailer, share the trailer, um, help us. We aren't we aren't Hollywood, we aren't Hasbro. Mm. Uh, it's just me and Chris and a couple other people that come in to help here and there. Um and so it's a very, very tiny production company on a mm. shoestring budget. Um and we're and I'm really proud to say that we're the first D D movie to be to come to completion with a smaller budget than the ones that gave people nothing.
0: Mm.
1: So, uh, yeah. Thank you
0: so much for it. It It's so good. And thanks for talking to us today. It's been absolutely fantastic. We'll do it again. Yeah, we will.
1: Are you you Dave's games at all?
0: Dave, I I know Dave and, um, we've, um, we've hooked up at our conventions a couple of times. I've not got to the table with him and I need to, um, you know, I really do need his, to. Uh,
1: his uh his uh a Mud Harbor game. I try to get into his game like it's usually they play it right now when we're talking. Yeah. But um um, <laughs> um you should come play Mud Harbor with Dave and me. Yeah, you know? he he keeps bugging me to come so yeah, I absolutely need
0: to. Maybe now that we're in this um you know, lockdown where I've got to work from home for the next 12 weeks, maybe I'll get the time now.
1: <laughs> uh, you know, I I work from. I'm an independent, and I work from. I've always worked from home, so it's just mm. like, I don't know what the freak out is. You know? <laughs> I'm doing thing I normally do. I'm just here, work here mostly trying to motivate myself to work. That's the hard part when you work yeah. from home.
0: Well, oh look, thank you so so much for your time, and thanks so much for talking to us. And I'll uh, I'll hopefully catch you soon.
1: Yeah, let's do it again. Let's <laughs> game. Let's let's game next time. Yeah, All absolutely. Right, Cheers. Thanks. Game on.
0: And that's it. Thank you once again to Griff from The Secrets of Blackmore for agreeing to come on to Roleplay Rescue and have a good chat. I found the interview engaging and Griff really got me thinking about how I play my own games. I hope you found something of use in there too. Thank you Griff. Please support the film by going and downloading it. Secretsofblackmore.com. Thanks once again to Frank Turfler of Middle Kingdoms Publishing for editing the interview. It wouldn't have happened without you, mate. Thank you. Thank you also to all of the patrons of the show who support my efforts through their generosity at patreon.com slash rpgrescue. It really wouldn't be the same show without you guys. If you're a new listener, thank you for giving Roleplay Rescue a go. If you want to know more consider delving into the back catalogue and seeing what you make of past episodes. There's a useful introduction and trailer to the podcast entitled What Is Roleplay Rescue, and I think that's kind of a great starting point. Be aware that today's episode is much longer than most. I try to aim for about 30 minutes, but that's simply not practical when you're having a great chat with someone like Griff. I hope you'll give the show another listen. I do have a special request for anyone listening on Apple Podcasts. Because of the way Apple promotes podcasts, it would be great to have a positive review from you to boost our visibility there. If you could take a couple of minutes to add a rating or, even better, post a review, I would be very, very grateful indeed. Whatever podcasting platform you're on, though, if you've enjoyed listening to Griff, please consider sharing the episode on social media. And on that note, I'm going to sign off. Don't forget... Because we are an anchor podcast, you can drop me a voice message if you have any comments or questions. Your contributions really do make this a better podcast, and all the contact details are in the show notes. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. I'm Che Webster. This is Roleplay Rescue. See you again next Saturday. Game on.